welcome to Long Hill Chapel Online. Thanks for checking out our podcast where you can listen to our latest sermons filled with teaching, encouragement, and hope from God's Word. So whether you're in the car, on the couch, or just poured some coffee, let's dive into today's message. Good morning, Long Hill Chapel Online. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Joey Monteleone. I am the worship coordinator here at church, and it is a privilege to be able to share with you this morning. You know, we all want to be remembered in some way, whether it's by our friendship, our generosity, our accomplishments, or the lives that we've lived. We all want to have great things recalled about us. But no one wants to be remembered or identified by their worst moment. Richard Nixon, the 37th president of the United States, he ended the draft. He established new anti-crime laws. He instituted broad environmental programs, among many other things, in a quest to gain world stability. But the second you say Nixon, the thing that comes to mind is the Watergate scandal, which ultimately led to his resignation. Will Smith, he's a wonderful actor and musician. He's well known for his compelling and emotional uh, performances with shows like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and films like Seven Pounds or The Pursuit of Happiness. Yet when we say Will Smith today, the thing that comes to mind is his Oscars interaction. Countless other musicians and celebrities come to mind as we think of a legacy that's marred by one mistake. One bad decision that focuses forever our memory on that action instead of all the other good stuff. And it would be one thing if these incidents were private, but it becomes much worse when it's in the public light. And this idea of being identified by our worst moment becomes even more interesting and complicated because it doesn't just remain a physical issue where we just deal with the outcome and the fallout of the act. It's a psychological component where we not only struggle to move beyond the action, but we begin to identify ourselves by the mistake. We call people cheaters, liars, thieves, and so on. We identify them as those things. And these labels sometimes can take a lifetime to shake off. And when you hear the labels often enough and loud enough, you start to believe them. You say, well, yes, I am less than because of what I've done. I am a failure. I am my mistake. And this begs the question, is this how God sees us? Does God view us or engage with us based on the things that we've done? Well, as we close out our Called by Name series, we're going to look at someone who was called by Jesus at the worst moment of their lives. And before we dive into that, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we ask that we would believe what you say about your love this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, it's incredibly important in life and relationships to choose your friends very carefully. Who you surround yourself with is crucial because not only do those people shape you, but you shape those people. Their values, their likes, their priorities affect us sometimes in ways that we know and other ways that we're completely unaware of. We're familiar with the verse in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33 says, Bad company ruins good character. Who we associate with is pivotal for the lives that we aim to lead. 
We all know this instinctually, and no doubt we were taught this at a young age. Be careful who you hang around with. And it's almost as though Jesus never got that lesson in school. Not only with the people he hung around with, like sinners and tax collectors, the sick and the poor, but with the people that he called his closest friends, with his disciples. Jesus had 12 men that he called apostles. Let's look at it in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. As Jesus picks his 12 disciples, he selects this character of Judas Iscariot. And you are no doubt familiar with the name Judas. It is so synonymous with betrayal that we don't even name our children that name today. You won't find it in 2023's top baby name lists. And I checked. But as we read and we ponder Judas this morning, we have something that the people of Jesus' time didn't have. We have the benefit of hindsight. You're no doubt familiar with the phrase, hindsight is 2020. That means with enough perspective and time, you can look back and make sense of the thing that you experienced. But at the time of Judas' selection, no one would have been able to predict what would have happened three years later. If you remember, the book of Matthew was written after the events of the crucifixion. It was written after the events of the resurrection. And so adding the phrase Judas who betrayed him was already a known fact. But something that's always fascinated me about the person of Judas and the surrounding disciples is that the betrayal of Jesus was not a complete plot twist. It was something that was predicted many times throughout Scripture. Jesus even predicts it in John 13, verse 18. He says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. And that's also a direct quote from Psalm 41, verse 9. But whether or not it was apparent that it was Judas who would betray Jesus to those around him, that remains unclear. Because like we read in Matthew 10, Judas also received power to drive out unclean spirits and to heal sickness and disease. He was just as much a disciple as Peter and John. And I think the temptation for us is to label Judas as a snake in the grass, someone who was always plotting to betray Jesus. But from a simple reading of the text, that doesn't come across. Now, that's not to dismiss his actions, which we'll get to in a moment, but it's at least to acknowledge the tendency that we have to identify Judas by his actions. That tendency is very easy for us to do. In fact, I've probably done it most of my entire life. What I think we need to remember is that Judas is a piece of the puzzle. It's a piece of the puzzle. In Acts chapter 1, Peter is talking to a group of people and he says, the scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas who served as a guide to those who arrested Jesus. In a way that I don't understand, and I don't think any of us will really ever understand, this was all a part of God's plan working out. 
This is all a part of scripture being fulfilled, of God pulling people and things together to accomplish something greater. And I think it's important that we at least have that perspective because when we understand it, it helps us understand and frame a little bit of what we're about to read in Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. Look at verse 47 one more time. It says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. If he had just arrived, he wasn't there. Judas was not present at that time in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he was present where they all came from, the Last Supper. Earlier in chapter 26, Jesus is mentioning to the disciples that one of them is going to betray him, which creates this awkward moment around dinner. But then Jesus takes bread and wine and he asks his disciples to remember him in his death. It's what we as the church do here at Long Hill once a month in the act of communion. We remember Jesus in his death. This is where it started. And Judas was present for this intimate and beautiful moment with Jesus. Why is that important? Because even though the Son of God knows what's in Judas's heart, he still invites him to the table. This is profoundly important for us to understand. There is no verse in all four Gospels where Jesus excuses Judas from the communion part of the meal. He wasn't asked to leave. Knowing what was in his heart, what his intentions and his motives were, and what he would ultimately do, Jesus doesn't send him away. 
And for some of us, there are aspects in our lives that are in process, that are not in line with God's heart and God's standard. There are areas of sin or struggle that we're battling with, and we think that we're dismissed from God's presence and his goodness and love until we put those things right. That's not the case. God isn't waiting for you to get it together. If he was, he'd be waiting a really long time. Instead, God countless times throughout Scripture says, Come to me, seek me, draw near to me. Not once you've got it all figured out, not once you've worked hard enough, not any of those ways. It's as you are. Come broken. Come frail and fragile and tired and failing and struggling. When we feel far from Him, we are not excused, we are invited. We are not excused, we are invited. We are not dismissed from his grace and his mercy, even though he knows what's in our heart at times. And so Jesus leaves with the disciples and he heads to the garden of Gethsemane and he prays. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus goes back and forth three times to the disciples and three times in prayer, and he finds the disciples sleeping. And what he's praying is that God would remove this cup, this situation from him, that he wouldn't have to go through with what's coming up next. And if he knows what's coming up next, we can assume that he knows who's involved. He knows that Judas will betray him. So think this out with me for just a second. When you know something bad is going to happen to you and you know someone is involved in it, that they will betray you, they're going to rat you out, they're going to stab you in the back or throw you under the bus, how do you treat that person? If it's me, it's not kindly. It's not with love, warmth, and grace. You don't welcome someone into your life or in your inner circle when you know they're going to burn you. But look at what Jesus does in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him, a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. When Jesus addresses Judas, when he calls him by name, he doesn't say, Hello, betrayer. He doesn't start with, hello, deceiver, greetings, you spawn of Satan. He doesn't say that. Jesus calls him friend. He calls him friend. And not in our New Jersey passive-aggressive, pandering way of being sarcastic. I believe the use of the word is incredibly intentional here, signaling how Jesus chooses to interact with Judas. He calls him friend. 
And what's interesting is that Judas spent years alongside Jesus. He witnessed and performed miracles and healings. He heard sermon after sermon, countless teachings. He was in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. He watched Lazarus resurrect. He was present to Jesus physically, and he still betrays Jesus. And at that lowest moment in his life, the lowest moment in human history, where the Son of God was betrayed, Jesus' response is so kind. It's gracious. It is slow and merciful to Judas. Now, let's be clear. This does not excuse Judas's horrid and selfish actions in any way. What it does demonstrate is God's love full on display when it absolutely shouldn't. When God was betrayed, when Jesus was traded for 30 silver coins by someone who was close to him, his reaction was not one of anger, but of sadness and consistent love. Jesus doesn't cut off a relationship with him, even at his worst moment. And church, he doesn't cut off a relationship with you either. And for some of us, you need to hear and receive that at your worst moment, your worst action, your worst thought or your failure, if we are in a relationship with God, if we've trusted in Jesus as our Savior, he does not cut off a relationship with us. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. It's not based on our actions. He extends mercy and grace and love. Now, does that mean that there's no consequence to our sin? No. What it does mean is that God's love is not punitive, but correcting and loving. Paul, a writer in the New Testament, puts it like this in the book of Romans, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is nothing that you can do that will make God love you more, and there is nothing you can do that will make God love you less. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. You know how I know that? If it applies to Judas, it applies to you too, and it applies to me. This means that we can engage with God even at our lowest moments, at our worst, when we've failed him, when we've denied him, when we've betrayed him, when we feel like we can't come to him. If we're in a relationship with him, he still calls us friend. The level that God chooses to engage with us is not based on our actions, but it is based on his love. And it's sad how Judas's story ends. If you're familiar, he realizes that he's made a mistake. He comes back to the leaders and he says, I have sinned, I have betrayed innocent blood. And he buys a field and he hangs himself. He cannot live with his mistake. He can't live with his betrayal. But what's interesting is that Judas is not the only disciple who betrayed Jesus. If you continue reading in Matthew 26, we find Peter being asked three different times if he knows Jesus, and each time he says, I don't know the man. He denies Jesus too, betraying their relationship. Judas and Peter 
both betray Jesus. They both deny him. They both abandon him. But the difference between Peter and Judas is that Judas believed that he was beyond redemption. He took matters into his own hands and he missed the offer of forgiveness and salvation that comes with the resurrection. Missed it by three days. Peter has a beautiful moment of reconciliation. It's an awkward conversation, but it's done in love, and he's reinstated into a right standing with Jesus. You see, our sins, our worst moments, our failures, even our betrayal of Jesus at times is now able to be forgiven because of Jesus' death and resurrection. The betrayal of Jesus, which led to his death, is now the thing that God uses to defeat sin and now allows us to come to him even at our worst moments. Because of the cross and the empty tomb, we are now able to be accepted by God through Jesus. Even at our lowest point, even when we betray him, he still calls us friend. And so how do we live this out? Because it's one thing to know that God doesn't engage with us based on the level of our actions, but it's another thing to live like that's true. And I think there's three things that we need to embody when practicing this. And the first is we need to believe. We need to believe that God does accept us at our worst. And this is hard because I, you know, I'll speak from personal experience. I think it's easier for me to believe that God split a sea in the book of Exodus than to believe that God still loves me when I fall short. But as we read, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And so we need to daily, moment by moment, remind ourselves of his love and believe that we are loved even when we fail. If we have put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, then nothing can separate us from that love, even when we fall. And this is a challenge because lived experience tells us that if we mess up, people reject us. But God's not like that. He knows who we are. He knows how he made us. And he not only wants us to believe in him for salvation, but believe that we are loved by him when we don't love ourselves. So the first step is believe. The second area is to repent. To repent. You see, that's the area that Judas never stepped into. Repentance. He might have recognized his sin to the leaders, but not to God. It's one thing for us to realize that we're broken, but it's another thing to come to God and say, I have fallen short. I have failed. I need your love and forgiveness. You see, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's his faithfulness and his mercy and his love. And we don't do it out of fear. We respond to his grace. So believing his love and goodness leads us to repentance. But then once we've repented, it's imperative that we receive once we believe that he loves us, we need to repent. And then we need to receive that love and forgiveness, probably at the moment that we need it the most. And not to keep God at an arm's length until we pull it together. That's religion. That's not a relationship. That's trying to do something to earn something. We can't earn this. 
It's a free gift. And so we must receive his love and his mercy day after day after day. And it's completely holistic. You know, belief is an intellectual concept to know something. Repentance is a physical action to speak something, but to receive it, it's to take that belief and that action and put it into practice. To live as though we know it's true. And then to let that truth transform the way that we love others, the way that we love ourselves, and the way that we love God. And so, believe, repent, and receive. This is the call of a friend. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for your mercy, your grace, and your love. This is a challenging message for me and for us, that even at our worst, God doesn't cut off a relationship with us. May we begin to be a people that not only believes that, but embodies that. May we repent where we need to, and may we receive and show the world how great and loving and forgiving you are. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. To connect with us further, you can visit our website at lhcnj.net or on social media at LHCNJ, and we'll be back next week with another sermon. Until then, have a great week and God bless.